0: Play for free at Luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Boyd were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Welcome to the Mike to New Haven podcast with sports personality Mike Cologne. Here's your host, Mike Cologne.
3: Love that intro. Can't get enough of it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Mike the New Haven podcast. Good evening to you. It is a rainy, sleety Monday night where I am in Connecticut. I hate this weather and I cannot wait for the spring and summer. And I'm jealous of my guest because even if it may be cold where he is, it's better than what I have here. So this is episode 149. If you haven't checked out episode 148, the previous two episodes were great. 48, 148, that is, was Chris Childs, the former New York Knicks point guard. I'm a big Knicks fan, so talking to him was great. He had a big hand in helping the Knicks get to their what is to date their last finals, Womp Womp, in 1999. So hopefully that can change someday before I'm 80 and won't be able to remember it. In the previous episode, former NYPD chief of detectives Joe Borelli. Uh, who led a life. That man did almost 40 years in the NYPD, worked the Son of Sam case, saw a lot of interesting cases as chief of detectives. He was fantastic. And that episode on YouTube was almost up to 500 views. So I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. And Chris Childs, like I said, was a great guest, too. And my next guest tonight for episode 149 will be no different. He lived the kind of life in 30 years in law enforcement that some never live in 80 on this planet. A New Yorker, through and through, his law enforcement career began on the border, as we'll discuss tonight, as a member of the original INS before a game-changing 1987 transfer to U.S. Customs would open his eyes to a world he could have never imagined. Privy to some of the most dangerous and equally unique and hilarious situations an agent can encounter, as we'll be talking about, Uh, he's still serving. And he shifted his duties from the federal law enforcement level to local law enforcement as a special agent with the Florida State uh, Law Enforcement or Department of Public Safety. Rather, basically their equivalent of the state police. And that is Mr. Miles son, who joins us this evening on the Mike, the New Haven podcast. Miles, welcome. How are you?
2: Good afternoon, sir. And thank you for having me, Mike. I truly appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and uh, your guests. Thanks for this opportunity.
3: Oh, thank you for being here. And thank you once again to Bob Starkman for putting the two of us in touch. Bob, you know, if you're listening, brother, you're the reason I was able to speak to Lorenzo and make friends with him, Alex Alonso, many other great guys in the works, and, of course, Miles here tonight. So thank you to Bob. Tip of the hat to you. Hope you're well.
2: Absolutely. Uh, You know, Bob and myself go back 50 years from uh, New York days, from uh, adjacent high schools to, uh, you know, meeting – uh, him him playing baseball, uh, basketball at your college, myself swimming at your college. So we, we go back a long ways. Uh, we, we, I consider him closer than a brother.
3: That's yeah. And he talked well of you off the air and he said the same thing basically when describing your relationship. So I believe you're a New York City kid. I believe to be exact, you grew up in Queens with some rich NYPD history in your family.
2: That is correct, sir. I was um, born and raised in uh, Queens Village. I was born in um, Kew Garden, but raised in uh, Queens Village. Um, went to Mont Van Buren High School and it went on to uh, York College in Jamaica. Um, during that period of time, I uh, was involved in a lot of things. I was basically, I swam in high school, swam in college. Um, my whole family was law enforcement. My father was a retired New York City correction officer. His two older brothers were uh, police officers, uh, NYPD, one being a first grade detective. Um, Eddie's son, uh, my brother's a retired lieutenant. From uh, NYPD, retired at the Sixth Point Precinct of Brooklyn. So, yes, my history is um, law enforcement through through and through.
3: So it made it pretty easy to go into that career field. I imagine your mind was made up early on. And you sent me some great photos, and I'll try to get to as many of them as Mm -hmm. I can tonight, including some of your relatives who you just mentioned. Uh, What's happening here?
2: Right here, this is uh, 1957. The uh, gentleman on the left with the camel hair uh, overcoat uh, with his hand in the pocket. Um, my father was a New York City correction officer. And um, um, the gentleman who was handcuffed, McKeskey, was the, uh was called the Mad Bomber, um, terrorized the city from 1941 through 1956, setting off numerous bombs at Penn Station, the uh, bus terminals, libraries. Um, numerous people were injured. Ultimately, um, thank goodness no one was killed. Ultimately, he was um, caught, arrested um, in Connecticut. And um, this is a picture of my father with other law enforcement bringing him into um, criminal court.
3: Connecticut being, for the listening audience, uh, that you just heard the description there. In case you're not watching on YouTube, Miles did a great job of describing what exactly you're not seeing because you're not on YouTube. You see, you got to subscribe to my YouTube channel to actually see the photo. There you go. MC's audio. Shameless plug. And Mateski ultimately wound up dying here in Connecticut. He he lived out the rest of his life here and and passed away in Waterbury in 1994. Um, And he was basically Ted Kaczynski before Ted Kaczynski. Maybe not in terms of philosophy, but certainly in terms of impact and danger.
2: Absolutely correct. Um, you know, he terrorized the city for many, many years. Um, and it was like every other individual who gets involved in this type of stuff is usually because they have a beef either with a company or the government, somehow they feel like they've been wronged. And, uh, I guess he worked for the electric company. He was unceremoniously fired and, and was trying to collect a disability, was denied disability and felt that, uh, all right. In lieu of that, I'm going to take it out on everybody by um, terrorizing the city. So, from a terrorist bomber now to mobster, what's happening here? Um, as you see, this is uh, 1936. Uh, my my father's brother, Eddie Son, the gentleman to the right with uh, three piece suit, um, was uh, a first grade detective. Uh, the gentleman in the middle is Lucky Luciano, and the guy to the right is my my uncle's um, partner. And this is a picture of uh, Lucky Luciano being uh, brought into criminal court after a um, year and a half investigation that my uncle Eddie was greatly part of um, and basically um, was did a lot of undercover and they arrested him for prostitution. They could not get Luciano on the, on racketeering, they couldn't get him on murder charges, narcotics, but they ultimately were able to arrest him uh, on um, prostitution charges. Uh, he was subsequently um, uh, convicted, sentenced to 30 to 50 years, uh, but the basically the case was made. My uncle, acting in an undercover capacity as a homeless person, for many months outside their you know um, their location, their pleasure location, uh, brothel. Uh, my uncle was ultimately able to uh, flip a couple of the working ladies and um, convince them to, to testify, and that's what ultimately um, got him arrested and convicted.
3: Miles Sun is your guest tonight on the Mike the New Haven Podcast. A quick shout out to our friends in the live chat, Alicia B, Margaret Hearn. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Hope to see more of you in the chat tonight. And as always, if you have a question for the guest, type away in the chat and I'll try to make sure that Miles sees it. So it's interesting when you're trying to get into your career, when you're trying to get started, I should say, in your career in law enforcement, you have connections in the police department. And like I said, you have a rich history. So it could easily be that one of your uncles or your father can go to you and say, hey, kid, take the test. And if you get on, I'll call inspector so-and-so, and he'll put you in a good precinct. But you you went to the Border Patrol instead. Why not local law enforcement? I'm curious. Not that the decision to go to the Border Patrol is wrong. Uh,
2: well, initially, my whole life, all I um, ever wanted to do and be was like my father and my uncles be um uh nypd that's that was in my blood however um in 1975 uh the city was in fiscally poor shape and um and the city wound up laying off in excess of 5,000 police officers and at that time i'm coming of age i'm 20 years old I'm trying to apply for the, for uh, a job at the city when they just laid off 5,000. it was almost impossible there's no way of getting hired with the city but at the same time, at that point, myself, <laughs> with Bob Stockman, were taking every exam in Nassau County, Suffolk County, state troopers, um, the federal, anything that was open with regard to um, announcements, with regard to taking exams, uh, we took. And um, for me, it was um, the U.S. Border Patrol was the first agency to to give me a shout and give me a call. And, um, uh, you know, and that's, I I remember how I followed my dream getting into law enforcement. Um, The interesting thing about that story, um, when I had to do my interview and my background investigation, uh, I actually was conducted at the federal courthouse of Newark and my brother at the time um, was uh, in the 77 precinct and he drove me to Newark And after I was um, interviewed and uh, offered the position, I remember my brother telling me at that time, he goes, you have no idea how lucky you are that you're getting out of here out of the city. And I just couldn't comprehend that. But he was like, um, you know, he had a lot of wisdom and uh, that he thought that this was the best move for a young person coming into law enforcement to be able to get out and go federal. And um, I never regretted it. I've been blessed. Um, you know, the job, the jobs I've had were, you know, amazing, a lot of uh, interesting things, fun, as well as being able to raise, you know, a beautiful family, um, on, uh, on the job, jobs that I did have. So and- I was fortunate going federal.
3: No, of course. And, and who knows? Because you know what? The, the 80s, I've covered numerous times with my NYPD friends, was a very dangerous time to be a police officer in the city. And a lot of police officers, sadly, between the NYPD, the housing police, and the transit police were killed in the line of duty, if not seriously yeah. injured. You know, it was yeah. a very violent decade for the police, for the three police departments in the city. Well,
2: I even go back further in the 70s when I would be at my brother's house and all his friends police officer's friends would be it was 17, 18, 19, and his friends would be coming over, you know, just hanging out for dinner, whatever it may be. And I'd be sitting on the edge of the couch listening to these stories. And I was like, you know, infatuated. And I just wanted to be one of them. Um, I remember they would come into the house and they'd all walk into his bedroom and they all had the um, the Model 36 or Model 60 five-shot revolver. And they would all uh, take their guns, you know, from inside the pants and put it up in, in his dresser, you know, for safety. And I, I would just look at this and I said, this is who I want wanted to be but at that time you're right i mean it was even worse then than it was in the 80s but we were losing cops to injury and um and and, and violent deaths on a regular basis it was a very very tough tough
3: time absolutely uh we see someone here in the chat our helio alonso who i imagine i believe is alex's better half yeah, that's correct, correct. Uh, yep, and she says congratulations. And, uh, yes, it is a big it is a big get for me, Arhelia. And uh, your, your husband mm-hmm. was a great guest, by the way. Uh, so shout out to him, and I hope that he's watching as well. So you went out to Chula Vista, California. Now, being a New York kid, it's funny because California, New York, we think of L.A. and the city, and they have their preconceptions over there of New Yorkers, and New Yorkers certainly have their uh, preconceptions about Californians. So getting out there, given where you grew up, uh, how much of an eye opener was that in terms of not just climate, something that, like that, but also culture?
2: It was a tremendous, tremendous culture shock. And remember, back in the seventies, we didn't have internet, so everything was um, an encyclopedia and almanac. I remember getting my notification, um, my letter of uh, fire, saying uh, that I've been accepted as a boarder, Asian GS seven, Vista, California, with a starting date, and I had to get the almanac, or I had to get an almanac out and with a map and look up Chula Vista, California. Didn't know that it was on the border. Didn't know that it was in San Diego County. And um, I said, wow, San Diego. I, said, I "I was like almost blessed in the sense that it could have been some really tough spot in uh, Arizona. It could have been some, you know, God forsaken place on the border with Texas, you know, uh, where, you know, like a two-man station uh, and 50 miles from anywhere. Uh, but the irony of that story was, I would tell when I finally arrived in San Diego, I remember telling my fellow recruits that for me as a new yorker um the farthest west i had ever been in my life was jersey you know crossing the Hudson. and uh this was like a a game changer an eye opener um and it was um at first it was like it was truly a culture shock uh we landed we were there for a week we got sworn in there was um uh you know major you know human resource paperwork to 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 do was over a hundred of us um you know just doing you know, the initial hiring phase um buying uniforms uh and it was just truly a culture shock uh but we we were there a week and then we, we actually flew out from there to um you know clinco georgia Fletsy, where uh we were our training we, were, we consisted of our training um at the waterfall academy
3: so you get through the academy and uh i go back to my interview with alonzo because he was in border patrol for a year and he described it and it's definitely a lot given its fact it's federal given the fact that you're operating at the border it's certainly different than your average police academy um and Chula Vista, it translates to beautiful view from Spanish. So it's that, ironic.
2: That's, okay. that's correct. It, and it, it, well, it was a magnificent place. But mm-hmm. if I may, just if I backtrack on the academy, um, listening to um, you know, Alex's interview with you, um, for the Anglos compared to Hispanic agents who spoke Spanish, the biggest difference for the non Spanish speakers was that we had two hours a day, six days a week of Spanish training that was brutal. And um, it was you know every day it was being um, um, bombarded with Spanish Spanish Spanish. Whereas the uh, native speakers, the difference for them, it, be it Puerto Rican, be it um, you know uh, Cuban, but where the Mexican American, um, the Spanish that they wanted you to learn was it was interesting. It was almost like it was Castilian Spanish 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 Spanish, and it was like with no um, you know no accents and the proper verbiage the proper everything um the one thing i just got to uh, shout out to, to alex was that
0: with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere
2: this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky
1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. VDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Later in our careers, um, U.S. Customs gave a language pay... Um, um, percentage for if you spoke a foreign language and the scores, you know, zero to five. And for myself, I was able to get a two plus kindergarten Spanish, but I was able to get enough and get the money where um, it was a 5% kicker uh, where Alex, so I found it very interesting his Spanish, even though he was born and raised in Hialeah, his Spanish was so good that he was able to ace it and get a five, which is, you know, the higher the score, the less on paper, the less hours you needed annually to get the bonus. And Alex was the, the only um, uh, Spanish-speaking agent that I encountered my through my whole career that actually scored out on a five. You guys got four pluses four, you know fours, four pluses. But Alex was uh, the true uh, the champion on the Spanish language, and uh, <laughs> you know, it was like I was always impressed with that. But because of that Spanish, for me, uh, learning it it afforded me many opportunities um you know coming to miami going to south america um being able to utilize the spanish i learned from the academy and you know learning on uh, more on the border it enabled me in the future to be able to use that and get these interesting assignments um overseas
3: right because you know what? what's interesting about it is that it's not just picking up French or, or picking up something like Italian Spanish because there's so many different countries that speak mm-hmm. it like me being Dominican half Dominican half Puerto Rican Dominican Spanish is much different than Cuban Spanish much different than Mexican Spanish much different than Spaniard Spanish there's that's you know correct. there's different words different right. words a, a word that's not a curse word in Dominican is a right. curse word in Uruguay you right. know so yeah. that verbiage and that the, the queens they say the Queen's English. You really got to speak the King's Spanish
2: if you're going right, to be a border right, right. Well, the interesting part, uh, an interesting story, um, it's 1980, uh, and I'll, I'll get back to where I started, but 1980, uh, the Mario Boat Lift uh, occurred in Miami, 125,000 Cubans, Castro um, let out 125,000 Cubans, family members, and ultimately, um, you know, he emptied his jails, he emptied um, the mental hospitals, and we were just being inundated with, um, you know, rafters, boats, you know, you know uh, and we were so overwhelmed that the immigration service needed uh, inspectors and border patrol from all over the country. So I was on a, I was actually assigned May 7th, 1980, assigned for two month detail to um, Florida uh, for the Mariel detail. And I remember. Uh, sitting in a blimp hangar in Opa florida you know the, the hangar was like uh, can hold you know 10 football fields and it was huge and it was serpentine lines tables thousands of people in there being pro- uh, processed um, fbi cia military intelligence they would just go through every table every desk everyone was for questioning and we'd be uh, the inspectors being sitting shoulder to shoulder with someone in front of us and um i thought my at the time my spanish pretty good and it was more uh, mexican chicano spanish because really, coming out of san diego yeah. and speaking to um these cuban refugees they would look at me like i was a martian like you know like <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm thinking i'm speaking pretty good spanish and they had no no idea what i was saying and you know fortunately you know the um uh, the public here in miami um uh, working you know, for free and 24/7 had translators. It was a, it was a godsend. So, um, what you just said is absolutely true. Uh, I thought I thought I was asking simple questions, and they had no idea what they're saying. Yep. yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: And so, being out on border patrol, we think. Yeah, again, preconceptions we talked about earlier. Okay, somebody's sneaking across the border and if they got contraband on them, they're trying to smuggle something. They stopped that, which nothing, I'm not diminishing that work. It's very important work and it's being done every day. But you did, as we discussed off the air and we'll discuss now, on the air. you did a lot more than that. You talked about fraud off the air and there was a couple of really, inter- invest, really interesting excuse me, investigations involving that. Take us through that
2: well uh, my career my my border patrol career once i was in uniform it was a, like a patrol officer on the border uh, watching um crossings on a daily basis 500 000, 2,000, numbers were staggering and the majority of the individuals uh, were individuals looking for a better life and it was a, it was it was a very interesting uh, component for me you know morally because i would look at these individuals the majority of them and if i said because thank god i was blessed to be born on this side of the line and that i'm an american and that if i was on that side of the line uh i would want to do the same thing coming across with a baby in my arms trying to make a better life and i, I understood that it was very very um it was very conflict- conflicting morally however the smugglers that took advantage of the individuals trying to cross the aliens, those are the ones that we try to make criminal cases and go after with with a passion. But the individual Mexican crossing and trying to enter the country, for the most part, were just, you know, hardworking, honest individuals that just wanted to have a better life. So it was a very conflicted moment to me, uh, you, know, you know, coming out of New York, you know, like being blessed and having a great life. I just want, you know, I want that for them. Um, but I didn't... Uh, appreciate or want to tolerate the smugglers the smugglers were the ones that we uh were truly um after um and a lot of times making criminal cases against smugglers entailed Mm -hmm. keeping the uh or uh, material witnesses the aliens that were coming across as witnesses being held to testify against the smugglers and uh for me this leads into a, a particular story um uh it was this it was the summer August of 1978 and myself and two partners, three of us three of us mm-hmm. um, and we used to call it the war wagon we had a a, a a dodge ram charger where we'd have the windows all like look like a cage complete cage you know bars on the windows every window because the on the on the Mexican side the smugglers would be constantly throwing rocks and missiles all types of missiles at the vehicles trying to break the windows cracks you know whatever they could do to uh, incapacitate us and on this particular occasion it was Dusk, going into 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, uh, 8 o'clock, getting dark. And myself, along with two others, um, were looking at a group li- literally uh, straight away, directly in front of us at 500. But to the left and to the right would be over 1,000 each way. They'd be flanking us and the three of us, three of us. And um, we would like, you know, 50 yards from the border. And at the time, it was two levees that were being constructed for a water dike, And you had the southern levee that was right on the fence, and the northern levee which is 20 yards north of that and so and all the aliens would um queue up on the american side on the south levee so they're all in the united states waiting literally waiting for for, for darkness just like a cheech and shang movie to just a mad a mad rush north so on this particular occasion we we decided to we're going to actually Mingle and we took took our, uh, our bordello jackets and reversed them so the badge wasn't shown and we just like walked into the crowd and they were we were recognized and it was like a hornet's nest it was like it was it was almost like a comedy it was like a hornet's nest people were just running every which way screaming la migra, la migra, la la and at this particular occasion we had a smuggler he was completely upset because we were disrupting his business and at this point this my, my partner is attempting to arrest the smuggler. And he's basically drunk. Um, he starts fighting with my partner. They're, they're rolling around. They're, they get into a big, uh, literally a fight. My partner pulls out his nightstick, hits him across the shoulders. At that point, the, the smuggler just falls back. If they didn't feel anything, my partner turns around back to the smuggler to pick up two aliens that were at his feet to try to pick, to pick them up and take them into custody where the, the smuggler picks up a boulder the size of a softball and it's seven, six to seven feet from my my partner. And we're like on a triangle. I'm looking at this. It's really surreal. I'm watching him pick up the rock and ready to charge and clonk him over the head, you know, kill him. And I'm at that moment, it was like in slow motion. Uh, I'm screaming in my best Spanish, you know, parate, parate, stop, stop, stop. And he looks at me and starts charging at me. And I just, I drew my revolver and, um, you know, one round um, and all I saw in the, in, in, in the in the dust was a puff of smoke dirt between his legs. He jumps and basically ran back to Mexico. And I just I just didn't know what I at the moment I didn't even know what happened. My partner looks at me and he said, Miles, you hit him. I said, I how did I how did I hit him? He just ran away. And my partner from upstate New York, a hunter, he goes, It was just like a deer. He hit him, they run and they cut and and they they fall. Well at this particular occasion his partners brought dragged him back into the United States for, for medical help, and it turns out I, I shot him right through the leg, and um, and he you know retreated from you know medically, and then we arrested him for assault on a federal officer smuggling. He was convicted for the whole nine yards. But this is my my segue into, into the smugglers. The aliens are the good guys. The smugglers were the ones that you know would take advantage of everybody, and that's what we were, we were dealing with. And the crowd got so big that the border patrol helicopter had to come in at fifty feet with the rotors road, going, and just. Blow it like a big fan. Blow everybody back into Mexico to stay away from, you know, um, you know, from the injured and from attacking the three of us. And uh, so we 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 were engulfed. It was I'm telling you, it was like a hornet's nest. We were engulfed, engulfed with people.
3: And that's 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 why you're on tonight because this is a story that, in learning so much about you leading up to this, I still didn't know that. I still didn't know that. And that's that's an amazing story. I mean, and and so after the shooting, the come down effect. What was that like?
2: Well, I, I remember when it, after the card, my adrenaline was so high. I'm hovering over this individual, and I, I couldn't put the words into Spanish because my Spanish wasn't that good. But I was just yelling. I him, like, basically, why why did you do why why did you fight? I was just like I was so angry at him that he engaged us where it could have gone so easy, and I was just so angered that he had to initiate to the point where he could have killed either one of us. And I remember yelling at him in English, you know, like, you know, you know, giving him, giving it to him for you know what he did and not that he deserved what happened to him, but the fact that he was caused this to, to my partner, to me, you know, that we were just, you know, uh, so, so fortunate to be alive, but I was just so frustrated and, and upset that he decided to, uh, you know, fight us and fight us basically to death. That's what it came down to. And uh, you know, and the reason I bring this up is because when I was in the academy, I had a Spanish instructor who happened to be an, um, ang- uh, an Amer- uh, Anglo-American who was fluent in Spanish and grew up on the border. He was uh, Anglo-American, but spoke Spanish like a, a true Mexican-American. And he experienced, and he talked about this, the same exact scenario where he was hit over the head uh, in Chula Vista with a rock. And when he was in the emergency room at the hospital, the doctors had to decide they had to triage him and a female who was worse, and he was unconscious, but remembers the doctors saying that, oh, he's not going to make it. Let's take the female. And that he always expressed the that rocks, how, how dangerous a rock is. You know, you would think a gun, a knife, but the rocks were, uh, were, were you know, lethal weapons. And so that was always in my head when that story from the Academy, what, and what I saw it happen to him. He lost all sense sense of taste, smell, came back a year later. And, you know, that was running through my mind. You know, I I just, I didn't want that happening to my partner nor myself. Uh, And I still communicate with my partner from, you know, from 44 years ago, whatever it was, uh, 40, you know, and we talk about that incident, you know, three of us in a, in a hornet's nest of, at least 500 <laughs> like at least 500 um and then just started swirling and, and, and going crazy uh you know we could have easily been kidnapped and dragged back to mexico and like, and no one would have been you know you know the wiser you know like it was. that's how um crazy the border was at the time and that's how crazy it was
3: any hard object is a lethal weapon i'll give you a story that you probably remember and this is in this is in new york city in 1993 a housing police officer john williamson he was. This where There was uh, some unrest. At the projects, and they were going over there since that was their jurisdiction to handle it. He was getting back into his patrol car, and a suspect who was an illegal immigrant from the Dominican Republic dropped spackle from the roof, and it hit him in the head, and he died a day later from uh, that yeah. injury. Mm-hmm. You know, so yep. Yep. yeah, that's that's it, it. Is a dangerous thing. Anything that's hard, a pipe, whatever, a baseball bat. If it gets you in the wrong spot. You're done for.
2: So from that moment on, I was. I try to analyze what. I could do um, where I could be the most effective, you know. Like again, the moral conflict. So I tried to be that guy post that incident, um, more of like a transport guy. So agents located, you know, you know, location one, two, three, four, five. We have six here, eight here, and I'd be the guy driving the van and coming, making the um, uh, the pickups. But what I always maintained was that I made sure that I had enough. Um, food. I always had enough to just been trying to do the morally correct thing. You know, these aliens at 3 in the morning uh, haven't eaten who knows for how long and I made sure that there was always something to eat so I felt like, okay, I'm doing my part. Um, I'm I'm helping the guys in the field. Um, I'm helping the aliens and uh, that I try to do uh, what I thought was right. And um, It was just a matter of time where I said, okay, when I have the opportunity to be able to transform Border Patrol to an immigration inspector position, which goes at the uniformed officers that are inside a port of entry at the Miami, at, the, at, the, at an airport, at a seaport, or a legal border crossing. So the Border Patrol would handle everything outside of a port of entry, where the inspectors would handle everything inside the port of entry. So my goal was to be able to become an inspector uh, where my talents would be better utilized. For instance, interviewing people, that was where you get involved with document fraud, people would uh, counterfeit for birth uh, uh, certificates, count for green cards people trying to cross through the port of entry using other documents, being smuggled inside a vehicle behind the dashboard of the car, the, little, the dashboard with steering wheelers. There was a whole compartment with bodies would be, you know, between that and the engine block. So um, that was the third, or, you know, they had border patrol inspections, and investigations. So the second component of immigration, as the officers go, was inspections. So I was able to transfer to in- inspections in San Isidro, which is part of True Vista, and I was able to do that for three years. Learned, you know, learned a lot. I was able to use my Spanish a lot more because I was constantly interviewing people. I was constantly searching, constantly looking at um, documents, fraudulent documents, and just getting a better read on individuals trying to uh, be.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo when we lost track of time. <gasps>
2: conduct various types of um, uh, incidents.
3: There uh, was uh, oh, sorry, I
2: mean. To cut you off, but... not, so, so the the um, my my uh, abilities to um, perform was largely predicated on um, you know just having great, great supervising, great um, training officers, uh, and the one gentleman I always give a kudo out to was a very close friend of mine uh, at the time was Oscar Tejas, and Oscar. Was a born in Mexico, um, became green card, became a naturalized citizen, and um, was able to train me and, and show me how interviewing individuals in Spanish and and how to get to the root, you know the root cause and finding out what we wanted to make prosecutable cases. But what I found so interesting with um, with my buddy Oscar, he was always he's like the that typical uh, naturalization, you know. Um, story, the the American dream. U.S. Navy, he's a green card holder, he's not a U.S. citizen, and um, he was based in, um, before Taiwan was Taiwan, it was Formosa, and it was telling me the story in 1959, he's in the Navy, he was um, in Formosa, and um, President Eisenhower was coming to visit the island, and his command went through his personnel jacket and realized that he wasn't a U.S. citizen, and for whatever reason, the president's coming um, you know, for security purposes. Uh, you had to be a citizen. So they actually flew him to Guam. He had to, to get sworn in and take the attention. You had to be on American territory. They actually flew him to Guam to become a U.S. citizen, you know, raise his hand, and uh, bypass the exam to swear him in and flew him back to Formosa so he could be there when, you know, President Eisenhower uh, arrived, and, you know, it was the meet and greet. It was just a great story that he told me, and I always remember, like, okay, here I am working with an individual who did it the right way, the legal way, you know, uh, you know, born in Mexico, came as a green card, became a U.S. citizen, became an immigration officer and trained Americans like myself from New York on how to be better immigration officers. So I always, um, appreciated, uh, what he had to offer. I just, you know, I adored his, his level of skill and his, um, as well as his empathy toward, um, you know, the aliens. Um, and as Sandy Sujo at the time, we were the largest border crossing, Border crossing in the world, we had more border crossing than anywhere, any port, anywhere in the in the in the world, and it was not only Mexican. We we would meet individuals from every country in the world, you know, and having to know what the immigration laws were all about to see if they were admissible or not was also an eye opener. We didn't use that in the border school because everybody crossing the border was illegal. Um, where at the port of entry. People would claim to be this, claim to be that. What, did they have a legal claim? Were they claiming asylum? So there's a lot more that you would have to do as an inspector than uh, and know the laws better than uh, as a Border Patrol agent.
3: There was an investigation involving marriage fraud in the Air Force. He so had a big hand yep. in. Take us through that.
2: Well, um, from San Ysidro, um, my ultimate goal um, getting into the Immigration Service is to become a criminal investigator, a special agent. And um, the opportunity arose where I was able to get a position as a special agent with immigration in Los Angeles. And um, at the time, again, I worked with some really uh, sophisticated, some really sharp individuals. Um, most of the guys I work with came. About or got hired, basically off the street, um, having a college degree, um, took uh, the the exam for agent. Um, never experienced the inspector side or the boardful side like I did. I came, you know, up through like you know the blue collar method. Um, they came, you know, off exams. But um, on this particular occasion, uh, we had a situation where one of the Air Force bases in um, in California, Central California, where we had a Filipino he was not even filipino american he was a filipino he was he was a green card holder permanent resident in the navy so you can be a green card holder in in, in any branch of the military up until up until officer once you become an officer you have to be a you have to be a citizen but below um, you can be an E5 E6 whatever it may be you can be a permanent resident a green card holder so this gentleman happened to be filipino he was a permanent resident 24 years old and he uh, had a lot of fellow airmen, younger guys, Anglo guys, who he convinced can make a nice little uh, decent buck if they wanted to and uh, get themselves involved with some types of marriage fraud. So what basically happened was he was the arranger. We had at the time many, many in California, many, many Filip- Filipina uh, women, a lot of nurses, but a lot of Filipinas who were illegal. They'd come on a passport and a visa. They would overstay. And they're, 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 six months vacate or whatever it may be, and then they were out of status and they were illegal. Uh, He was arranging through many service members in the Air Force to marry these women who were willing to pay upwards of $2,500 to get married. And at that point, the uh, Office of Special Investigations Air Force was investigating him with him as well as these other service members for uh, fraud, because once they got married, they were also entitled to basic housing, basic uh, additional allowances of money predicated on the fact they were married. So the Air Force was getting beat out of millions of dollars on all these service members collecting um, housing and food allowances based on the fact they were married, which was a sham. Plus, we, we, immigration, were looking at him for accepting money Uh, for arranging all these marriages. So the guy that we went after was the arranger um, and he had a multitude of American airmen who married Filipinas who they were getting money from the Filipino, the illegal aliens, plus they were getting money from the Air Force to live off base. So ultimately, um, uh, myself and my partner who initiated the case and he subsequently um, transferred, I was given the case, um, you know, uh, inherited the case from him where our guy was convicted in a He got ultimately four years, um, in, um, in prison. The irony of that story though, is that while we were in court, he was pleading not guilty. Uh, we were in trial and federal courts, a little different than, than state courts, where you can have a federal judge, you can have a, um, uh, a trial going on and all of a sudden the trial can be, um, stopped or interrupted because the judge might have a, uh, a quick hearing that he has to uh, address from another case. So this particular day, um, uh, I'm, I'm in court. I'm at the, at the prosecutor table, um, and we're going through all witnesses. The trial is going along. Judge one o'clock or two o'clock calls for like basically a timeout, and said, "Listen, I have a quick hearing that I have to attend to. We don't need to break. Jury jurors can stay where they are. It was only going to be ten minutes." And uh, it was Howard Weissman coming in. He was the attorney for uh, John Delorean. Back then, the John Delorean case—he was arrested by the uh, the, uh, the the FBI and DA for you know drug smuggling—and he was coming in, purely on a different case, it had nothing to do with Delorean. But he was coming in. I recognized him, and I just happened to turn to one of the jurors and I said, "Hey, you know who that is?" And I just, I just, just—it was a, just a, i blurted it out, and uh, I said, "That's you know Delorean's um, you know former attorney." And when the hearing was over for that particular uh, issue. Uh, the defense on my case tries to call for mistrial because I opened my mouth and said something, uh, spontaneously to one of the jurors for my case. And you're not supposed to have any interaction. And, uh, we had a closed chambers hearing. I got called into the, you know, the judge's chambers, um, Prosecutor, the your attorney, the defense attorney, and I'm getting lambasted, and I realized, hey, I, I, Your Honor, I'm wrong. I, I, I should not have. I should not have said a word. It's just, but it just came out because it was, it was the DeLorean case was basically very fresh in everyone's mind in L.A. It, was, it just happened, and it was, you know, very newsworthy. And when the attorney walked in, it just caught my eye, and I just basically, you know, said that to the juror, and I. Ultimately, there was no mistrial. Ultimately, uh, the trial went on, and um, and my uh, my target was convicted. You know, he was um, uh, number one. He got time. Number two, he was kicked out of the military, dishonorable, and number three, I, he was now um, set up because he was conviction for deportation post um, uh, once released. I don't know if he ever did get deported, but he was now subject to lose his green card and could be deported. So that yeah. that was the the Air Force service members. Uh, you know that was my marriage for chase, and
3: yeah. that's like you know you, when you take down a drug dealer, it's not you're looking really for the dealer, not looking for the people he dealt right. it to. Right. You know, right. and that's right. kind of the same thing here. Even though right. they kind of know that they're doing wrong too, right? Well, in the grand scheme of things, right. you want the big right. fish, not the little guppies.
2: Well, what happened was even with the airmen, we didn't prosecute federally on the airmen who took the money. We made them material witnesses against um, the, the service member that we're prosecuting. However, they were. Um, uh, um, release from the military other than honorable and had to make restitution for all the money um that was their their penance they had restitution for all the money that they um took from the air force uh there was no criminal charges filed against them um with as long as they uh, testified on our behalf the government's behalf
3: wow so That yeah. brings us to nineteen
2: eighty seven. You had spent. Nine... To, if, Go ahead. One more. If one more. That, that were interesting in LA though, where we not only marriage frauds, but we also handled um, document frauds, mm-hmm. and we had a lot of cases where, um, where individuals were always looking for documents, you know, counterfeit green cards, counterfeit paperwork, just so they can get a job. Back then, there was no computerization. It was very, very difficult. If someone presented a green card to a business owner, they just took it at to face value, and the onus was not on the business uh, because he's he or she is wasn't um the demand wasn't on them to know if it's good or bad so um when we arrested uh, a couple of aliens who were in possession of counterfeit documents we were able to uh, get them to tell us where they got the documents from and we were able to uh, actually uh, engage the document vendor so my partner at the time the, um, the office comedian who was an unbelievable investigator, Gary Fischel, always had us laughing every day. He goes, let's go. I'll pose as a businessman, and I'll just um, order up, say, 50, 50 green cards. And what we what he would do is he would have photographs. He was a photographer. So he had photographs, men, women, uh, all nationalities, and just do the headshots for the, for the green card. And uh, on this particular occasion, he decided to use a photo of Mayor Bradley, who was the mayor of LA at the time, and um, the irony of that story was when 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 Gary Fishel presented all the pictures and the bio- yep, that's it that's it the the biographical data to the document vendor, the document vendor looks at. Um, this individual and says, Isn't he somebody? Isn't he like the chief of police or something? And Gary with a straight face was so cool. He said, No, nope, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, this guy is just, you know, one of my employees. And um, and he said, Okay. And the guy the vendor knew better, but still was greedy enough to take the money. Whatever we charged back then, I don't remember. But he took the money and because he wanted he wanted the business. Once he was arrested and we had the documents as evidence we went to the u.s attorney's office and they were went off off the rails they were livid like you know when uh, so my my partner he said this could be a you know a nightmare like you know, the media and gary was able to explain to the uh, assistant united states attorney listen this gentleman who sold us this card who made this card knew that something was not quite right but was still greedy enough to take the money he couldn't walk away and said I ain't, i'm not doing this card but he chose to take the money and still make that card he goes therefore this guy against his better judgment still made the card and it shows his um intent that he was just so greedy that he, was, he didn't care who he was taking photos from or who he was taking money from and he, he was ultimately uh convicted of document fraud it was it was a very very good case uh that and it was just one of those thinking outside the box so those episodes that i'm i'm explaining to you back then is what made me when I transferred to customs in in Miami that much better of an investigator. I just like always thinking outside the box, coming up with different angles, uh, how to make a case. And that's what, uh, you know, brings us to 1987 when I actually transferred to U S customs in Miami um, at the um, with the great help of, you know, again, Bob Stockman. we were pals all along. Uh, Back then, if you were in one agency, uh, immigration, was on the Justice Department, Customs was on the Treasury, but if you were the criminal investigator and the numerical classifier was 1811, if you're an 1811 FBI, 1811 Secret Service, you're all the same. But it was easier then to transfer between agencies if you're already in the position. So if there was a vacancy, one agency, and they needed 1811 criminal investigators, they can um, you can apply from an outside agency and get hired. And he was instrumental uh, you know, Robert was in getting me um, hired, and then subsequently transferred to South Florida. You know, it was all you know that was all on him.
3: The interesting thing about your transfer is that by this point, you know, I go back to my interview with Alex again because when Alex made the transfer, he only had a year of not right. just with the Border Patrol, but a year of experience total. Right. You're right. no rookie; you have about, right. about a decade of experience, but that's nonetheless, right. you're going from an agency that's targeting smuggling to an extent uh, and also fraud now to an agency that is still targeting those things and customs but now is focusing more on narcotics right. given the familiarity and what they were targeting overall it's like my friends in the bomb squad who previously were an eod in the military it's not that hard of a transition because you're kind of doing the same things did you find it was an easy transition given that
2: well it was it's twofold number one the majority of the individual individuals that we were
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Targeting or investigating with regard to narcotics smuggling were foreign nationals. Uh, number one, you know, there, uh, the difference was most of the uh, if it was coming out of Colombia or Venezuela or South America. The majority would here on a visitor visa came here legally at some point. So. I understood the immigration component. I understood, okay, um, if we um, were able to identify somebody, I was able to make contact with the embassy uh, and pull their visa application. You know, I I knew the inner workings on how little. So from an investigative standpoint, I was, you know, more well-rounded. When it came to narcotics, uh, my first supervisor uh, here in Miami, Al Newlard, who was a, a rough, tough New Yorker, a former New York City cop. Uh, back then, uh, you, you didn't have the vesting rights. So he, was, he did nine years. Uh, NYPD lost it all to come to the feds. He was, uh, became a special agent, but he had that New York flair. He, knew, um, he just knew how, how to do it. And I remember we'd have these conversations, and he goes, hey, Miles, you got to understand. You know, investigating apples is investigating oranges. It's the same investigative technique. Because goes, the difference with narcotics is that the commodity is already illegal. So you get a guy, with it's in his hands, it's illegal. You get a guy with a counterfeit, you know, brake pad, it might not necessarily be illegal. He might not have knowledge. The guy's stuck with a kilo of cocaine in his hand. There's no way him or her saying they didn't know what was going on. So a lot of times, once in possession, it was a lot easier to make a, a, a narcotics arrest um, and and prove knowledge uh, because the commodity was illegal. Uh, whereas other crimes, um, if a person was in possession of counterfeit of money, a couple hundred-dollar bills, they might not have known it. It's very hard. To, how do you show knowledge? Knowledge is the, is the big factor in all these crimes, showing that the person, you know, and that's the trained investigator, getting that person to to speak and talk and and, and, and give it up is what really separates the great investigators from the average investigators. So my talent coming from uh, L from LA and all the years of doing these interviews and talking to people, I just, you just get a a sense of who's lying, who's fibbing, who's telling the truth, you know, what's, what's going on. You just get a real sense. Um, But my major, my major um, uh, asset was that I made sure that everyone I dealt with would be a Columbia, Venezuela, whoever it was, I always made sure that I knew something about, their home country. So my segue into any conversation. So you're from Colombia, so you're from Bogota, from Medellin, you're from or you know, you're you're from Cali. So I knew something about their country, so I become endearing to them, and so the conversation would start with me recognizing that there's something special in their mind. They would look at me like, oh, he, he he's interested in what I have to say, or I would just make them very very comfortable at um, speaking to me, just because there'd be, you know just down low-key not the hard john wayne type but just the opposite and uh, so that's that's how that's how i always uh um uh, acted and and conducted my investigations um you just you know being the gentleman you know back and forth and knowing something about them and their country uh, and they were always and uh anyone I dealt with was always amazed um uh that okay i i had that that ability an example we had made a controlled delivery to um uh an individual and i don't know if alex told you the story we're doing it was on the road we we're at a hotel and we had to deliver a suitcase and um to a colombian he was going to be 10 kilos and we're delivering the suitcase back then the 90s you actually use real the real cocaine by 95 it was all fake it was all sham you you take the real stuff send it to the lab and then just repackage some you know you know focus, um, you know, talcum powder and make it look like kilos. But back then we used real narcotics. We walked into the hotel and I was looking at the, at, at the, um, in the lobby and looking at this big, beautiful portrait, uh, on the wall. And he goes, he looks at me and he goes, Miles, that's my sister. It was a marriage. The, 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 the um, the portrait was of his sister, marriage at that hotel you know many years earlier and uh she was you know just a magnificent woman and the hotel i guess got permission from from his sister to be able to hang that portrait so the irony being was that Alex is doing this on the cover and he's completely you know like uh discombobulated because he sees it you know like he's like what's my sister doing on the wall you know that type of thing so alice delivers this new case um, uh, it was a Colombian American who spoke perfect English. He happened to be the, the, before he was in the drug business, he turns out, we find out after he was the former military attache from Colombia to Great Britain. So his English is, you know, it was, it was spotless. Um, he, um, accepts a suitcase. We all would be basically him right in, Alice leaves, we walk in myself and my partner from DEA, because back then, if you were accustomed to doing, um, um, controlled deliveries with narcotics, you had to have a DEA partner with you because under Title 21, which is the Federal Narcotics Statute, you, customs we had Title 19, which is Customs Authority, and Title 18 was criminal. But Title 21 was specifically designed for DEA and FBI. So if we were to do a narcotics investigation, we'd have to have a DEA agent tethered to us so we had the authority... Blessed by them to do it. So my partner, Gene Blahado, we knock on the door, we open up, he opens up. We said, "You're under arrest, the whole nine yards." And he was a real gentleman, and he asks me in English, "Is it okay?" And this is right in the beginning when most people didn't have cell phone yet. It was just starting of the brick cell phone era, but most people didn't have them. And he asked me if he could make a call to his wife in Columbia, uh, and that just tell her what happened. I said, "Absolutely." He didn't have a phone, so I used the house phone, and I called my Communication center and asked them to please pass me through to the following number in Colombia. They did. And he gets on the phone with his wife. I'm sitting here, never knew that I spoke any Spanish with my partner. And he says to his wife, the first thing out of his uh, mouth was, Oye, mi amor, oye, he perdi. And I looked at my partner. And I, I, I said he just, you know, like we didn't even ask him a question, and he already admitted, you know, you know, hey, my love, I just I played and I lost, and uh, and I was able to, you know, memorialize, that, you know, in my uh, my first report, and I never even had, I never even read him his rights at that point because I had no questions to ask him other than his, you know, name, address, you know, you know, serial number, whatever. Um, and we were, you know, total gentleman with him. You know, I was transporting him to uh, the federal detention center, just stopped and got him something to eat. You know, he's hungry. Um, and we were just chit chatting about, you know, Columbia, nothing about the case. Um, you know, of course, he decides to plead not guilty. Um, his defense attorney, um, call, I'm, I'm, I'm the primary witness, and um, I am um, called uh, at the witness, witness stand and to read. And I didn't even read him his rights because I never asked him any questions, but I was asked by the defense counsel to read the rights card in Spanish and uh, th- thinking I didn't know Spanish. And you know, I had me just running a jury like I was on stage. And, uh, and I you know, read it out loud. And, um, and the first rule is uh, for attorneys is you never ask a question if you don't know the answer. And he didn't know the answer. He just assumed, OK, here's, you know, an American Anglo probably doesn't know Spanish. And uh, let me see how he read it. And I, you know, I was, I was fairly good at it. And uh, that basically blew his case. you know, like out of the water. He was trying to make the, make the, um, the fact that there was a communication gap between us, even though he spoke perfect English, he was trying to say he's fine. We only spoke Spanish. Right. And that was, that was the, uh, the gist of that. And, uh, it was, but I knew said, listen, it was a game. I, would, I didn't get upset. Was, hey, this is, he, was, he was getting paid to do his job and he, you know, he, to the best of his ability, but that was, uh, and, it, that, and that Spanish ability came from the border. Patrol. So the border patrol, uh, and the inspection was a blessing because I was able to, you know, communicate and I just, you know, more nationalities. I just became more worldly. Uh, and it just made me a much better investigator.
3: We have a few more photos that okay. uh, that you uh, shared with me here, and I wanted to go through each of them, as many as I can. That way you can explain okay. what's going on in each one. So uh, first, let's do this one. Oh,
2: this on. no, this is um, the Border Patrol Academy, and one of the um, um, the um, big things besides Spanish was uh, physical fitness. And in this scene, the uh, that's me facing the camera uh, with the gloves on and um, with the uh, headgear. Uh, everyone had a box one three-minute rounds and um and and you had to hit your partner the gentleman whose back is to us was a former marine and we were always like um two uh heads you know you know knocking each other like he goes i want you i want you like it was like he had just you know this, this this he just wanted me so uh and no one wanted to box him because he was a former marine He was a tough guy so it's not i said hey you know ross uh, let's 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 go for it and um uh, we went. We we held our own. Both of us, you know, for three minutes. And basically, after that we after re, it out the respect that we had for each other was, went through the roof because uh, neither one of us would, you know, would, would back down. And uh, we stood there toe to toe and went at it. And um, and we, we we were respected by the uh, by the class. And we really respected each other after that. We came from like you know like basically frenemies to friends at that point. And we were also stationed together in uh, um, in Chula Vista. We worked together,
3: and uh, here as well. I think you're still yeah. on Border Patrol here.
2: Yes, sir. This is my my first first month back, and you can see the uh, the uh, I, I've got a cult. I got a Colt uh, Trooper Special. Uh, it, it's a wheel. They call them a wheel gun. Um, and back then we didn't have. Uh, uh, you know speed loaders this was before speed loaders where you see the, the belts with the loops and it was just like the, you know the uh the cowboy days you know, you had 12 rounds in the loops and that's uh if you got into a shootout you had the, the rounds of one at a time one at a time And that was uh my my uh, uh first month back on the job the irony of that story was with the weapon in, in uh in hands um back in the Border Patrol days, we never got new weapons. So one, one agent could get a Smith and Weston, one guy get a Ruger. Everybody got a different weapon, and they were all used. And the irony about the Colt, the Colt revolver, is two things. Number one, in um, the Smith and the Ruger, the firing pin is in the hammer. So the hammer drops, and it hits the rounds. In the Colt, it was the opposite. The, the hammer was flat, and the firing pin was in the gun. So the, the hammer would drop and hit the firing pin, and the round would go off. Uh, and secondarily, the wheel, when it rotated, you know, clockwise or counterclockwise. When the rounds would go from, you know, eleven o'clock to twelve o'clock, one o'clock. On, um, I, I, and it's been a while, but on the Smith and the Ruger, I believe the wheel went counterclockwise, and on the on the Colt, it went clockwise. And one of the drills we used to do at the academy, you had one round left on the ground, and you had to know where to put it at eleven o'clock or one o'clock, and. If you had a, that one round left, you had to know where to put it. And if you went the wrong way, it would just keep on recycling until you got to the rounds. So that was a training we got on a wheel gun, uh, come out of the academy. Um, I just qualified uh, four weeks later. We have to qualify again, get to the range, click, 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 hammer's falling, nothing's happening. Um, it turns out, you know, run through the uh, you know, the, the hills and the mountains and the, and the, the cactus, uh, the firing pin internally on this gun had somehow from day one to day 30 come out so i'm running around with a gun that was useless i had no didn't know it you know with a firing pin that was gone that was because they were all used you know uh, used guns that were recycled 10 times over that was uh my my first indoctrination to uh handguns and i never grew up with guns my, my whole family of cops never went shooting never did anything so this is all new to me um you know going to the range it was all new and this one, I think we recognize
3: the gentleman yeah. on the right with the uh, mustache
2: there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is uh, uh, when Robert and his wife um, came to San Diego, and visited us. They were doing a trip to California. I was in San Diego, and that uh, we had traveled to Tijuana. Uh, and we'll, you know, we're best friends, and we're just you know, you, you know, local uh, one of the local um, souvenir shops bought a couple of, you know trinkets, and uh, and we just life was life was a lot simpler and a lot easier back then. You can have two big gringos going down to um, Tijuana and not have to worry about getting kidnapped and, um, and, and caught it off and, you know, held for ransom back then, you know, today um, it's, it's off limits to everybody. But back then it was, was, you know, totally different, totally different.
3: Absolutely. Now, when you were with customs, one of the interesting things about it is that, and and I think about this because of my interviews with my friends from the emergency service unit of the NYPD, you were on the warrants team. And as I've often discussed with them, and as we'll discuss here, You can prepare as best you can. You could be wearing those heavy ballistics helmets, have the shotguns, have the heavy vest, but you still don't know what's on the other side of that door. They might have attack dogs. They might have hand grenades or any other weapons, like you talked earlier about, rocks that they'll throw at you, and they might have a firearm or two or three. So when you're on a warrants team like this, it doesn't matter how big and strong you are or how well you prepare. The weapon is the equalizer. And unfortunately, cops have and agents have gotten hurt and have gotten killed in these situations. First, why did you want to be on the warrants team? And B, uh, secondly, take me through the preparation for safely executing a search warrant.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
1: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In
0: that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up.
2: Um, well, first off, the, the warrants team uh, was relatively new for U.S. customers. We called it the Warrant Entry and Tactical Team, WET W-E-T-T. And up until about 88, uh, we would use Miami-Dade uh, uh, Miami or City of Miami, their warrants team, to do execute our warrants. And it was basically a sense of pride. Like, listen, we, we, we could be and should be able to do this our, on our own. And... Um, my supervisor at the time, you know, God rest his soul, Peter Gerard, was a phenomenal supervisor as well as the founder of the Warren team. And he was he was a former Marine. He was big on training, uh, weapons training, you know, long guns, handguns, the whole nine years. We did a lot of tactical, uh, you know, clearing downtown Miami. We had abandoned hotels that we do uh, clearing rooms on a constant basis. It was still primitive as to today's standards. But we were still being tactical athletic being able to uh, clear a room uh, you know two men three men or you know six man stack um uh, an interesting uh, occurrence uh, happened where the irs uh, did not have their own warrant team and they didn't really want to rely on um, miami day but they were doing they had a, a money laundering a uh, search warrant, a, a search warrant for uh, subjects in a uh, money laundering caper, which was quite big, and they asked if we, U.S. Customs, couldn't execute their warrant, and my boss had no problem with it. Uh, it was, the house was gated, and you have to get the, you know, the bare cord to, to put the hook on the uh, on the gate, pull it off, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the initial perimeter, and then on the front door, it was, you know, the front door was a door, but then you had gates that look just like prison bars, and we had to get secondarily the big book and pulled the the, the uh the, the bars down and we're on the stack It was about six in the morning it was just you know about two minutes after six you know doing the knock uh and all of a sudden the door opens and you see the female of the house in her, her, her in, in, in a nightgown standing there frozen frozen and you hear my boss who is not a spanish speaker um, screaming at her and barking orders in English, and she couldn't move. She couldn't, she couldn't move. And uh, we're just like, we're, we're like frozen. We're looking at her. She's not moving. We didn't want to, you know, push her, knock her down, which, you know, ultimately we, we, we could have. But I, I give, this is a, a scenario where Alex is like number two on the stack, and he screams at my boss, you know, to, to shut up. And Alex proceeds to talk to her in Spanish and tell her who we were, and uh, then she, she, you know, basically snapped too, and uh, we were able to, you know, execute the warrant successfully, nobody getting injured. But the point being was, then it was like everybody screaming, everybody screaming. It was like, you know, a Full Metal Jacket, everybody screaming, at, you know, at, at the enemy, and nothing was getting, uh, nothing was being, um, uh, you know, digested by the the, the opposition. So until so Alex just, you know, you know, this big command, you know, to shut up, and um, gave her the order in Spanish, and uh, and it, everything was total compliance from that point forward. Um, yeah. but,
3: no, so, I, I, no, I just that's all I was saying.
2: Go ahead. Yeah. So the, uh, the the next uh, scenario uh, we we where we used our uh, our warrant team. Um, and we these this episode happened to be on um, on cops. We, we were involved in about twenty different episodes in cops in the early nineties. Uh, U.S. Customs, along with Miami uh, Metro PD at the time. And this particular um, incident. Um, we were working a case jointly with the FBI. The female agent was um, Chicana, Mexican-American in Texas, posing uh, as Alex's um, girlfriend, and we were doing a dope deal. And they were very, very successful. And once the deal was over, normally, you know, the the, the undercover is not going to be the case agent. I have to be the case agent. And Alex being undercover wasn't um, on the warrant. so. Uh, when we were getting ready to execute the search warrant, my partner, I um, think was Thelma Campos, She asked me, she goes, do you want to use your team or my team? And I was like, so proud of my guys. I said, no, I want to use the custom team. And um, they hit this house in Coconut Grove. And basically what happened was they entered the house, um, uh, you know, knock, 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 please, please, please. No, no, no response. You know, door came flying open. They they went in and as they're walking in, there's basically a stairway through a second floor. Second level, second floor, and as they're stacked up on the stairwell, the the first floor was was um, completely uh, you know it was it was covered and it was uh, it was you know clean and safe. Uh, they're moving up the stairs and they see shadows and they hear noise on on the on the landing, but they couldn't see around the corner. And they're screaming in Spanish, they're screaming everything English, Spanish, everything you know. Stop, 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 stop. If you don't stop, we're gonna throw smoke, um, you know, or concussion and a concussion grenade. So. Basically, what happened was nothing's—you know—there's the shadows are moving, and uh, number three on the line was uh, my buddy Tom Trotto, who played uh, college baseball as a pitcher, and he's third on the stack. But going up the his right shoulder. He's a righty, and his right shoulder's on the on on the wall, and he pulls the pin, and he has to you know loft it with his left hand, and that with the iron being a baseball player, it hits the top of the wall and keeps bouncing back down. I'm I'm outside with with the FBI agent and. What basically happened was the concussion grenade bounces back down the stairs and goes off with all my guys on the stairs, and they came out like a movie. They come out, their hair is disarrayed. They're all like, you know, deaf, you know, from the concussion grenade, uh, and uh, and I'm looking at my partner like, here's um, these are my guys that I'm so proud of, and uh, it turned out to be, you know, uh, a boondoggle. Besides the fact that the shadows and movement were a couple of dogs, it wasn't, um, you know, there was no individual in the house. And uh, we ultimately did the a search of the house and we got our contraband. But the point was, there was nobody in the house. It was just dogs.
3: Can you and imagine the, how confused the poor dogs had to be with you know, everything? Oh right.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, right. Right. Exactly. But the irony was the guy who threw the uh, concussion grenade was the pitcher and he was the one that missed the mark. God, boy. <laughs> yeah. it's like throwing yeah. a fastball right. right down the yeah. middle and right. hit 450 right. feet. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, uh, we, um, we, every lesson, every one serve was lesson learned and we just got better and better and better and better. You know, like, you know, that, that was, right. you, you know, that and that's, that's how you learn, you know, uh, you know, better tactics, better training. We just practice more, um, to the point where today, uh, the legacy of that is at, um, HSI is it's a full time. It's a full time team that, you know, um, does that. And they have part-time um, agents that are part of it. As a matter of fact, my son happens to be a special agent with Homeland Security. He happens to be on their team. So, uh, you know, he's, he's constantly training. They're constantly serving warrants. They do two or three a week. Um, the level of warrants um, that they serve has escalated tremendously from 30 years ago. Um, the big ones that they serve today are all the um, the child porn warrants. You know, those, those are the guys that have nothing to lose. Um, you lose more officers, injury or death to those types of individuals, and you do, you know, murder one suspect. Murder one suspects go to prison, they're heroes. A child porn um, uh, subject goes to prison and he's going to get, you know, murdered. And so the, these individuals know they have nothing to lose. They're going to shoot out with the cops. Um, and last year, February 2nd, we lost two FBI, two, you know, down here. Um, so that's when HSI decided to go full-time uh, uh, SWAT guys, as well as every warrant served by HSI is now served by their SWAT team. Um,
3: that, that's that's why I admire ESU because um, they
2: make it look right. so easy when they come right. down yeah. these yeah. doors. Yeah. Um, it, it, and, and true, they are these guys, the way I describe them, they are the all stars of the game, you know, like you know, like it's, it's, it's a young man's game, but they are the all stars. Um, and they're you know, they're just good at what they do. It's a, and the uh, the ability to practice five, six days a week, so it's muscle memory. So when you enter and you clear a room. Everyone just knows where to go, wherever you are on the stack. One, two, three, four, five, six. Wherever you are, everyone just knows where to turn, where to look, where to go. No verbalization even has to occur. That's how good these guys are. It's like clockwork. And every agency at every level. I'm, you know, it's not only HSI, FBI, local departments. They are truly uh, amazing individuals. You know, these and many lives are saved because of their um, ability to execute and serve a warrant. With, uh, without injury they do a great job they do a great great job so I was proud to be part of the founding fathers of of the customs SWAT team but they've um, it's like truly like something from the stone from then like the stone age to now how good and uh, efficient and professional they are um, they're just amazing men and women uh, they truly are
3: Absolutely. I concur. Miles Sun is our guest tonight on the Mike Haven podcast. A few more shout outs here in the live chat. Patty L is here. Thank you very much for being here. Peter Pranzo, legendary NYPD lieutenant and author. He's here. His better half Raquel is here, too. Uh, thank you guys, as always, for supporting the show. Like I said earlier, if you have a question, fire away. And I promise you, I'll make sure that Miles sees it. So what's interesting about you is that you were an attache going to other lands, as we discussed. And now we'll discuss more in depth here in that it's one thing to combat crime here. But now you're going to their backyard, you know, it's like playing a playoff game on the road, hostile territory. And you're in Uruguay and you're in Venezuela, And so there you're at a disadvantage because now you have to blend in and you stick out like a sore thumb, you know, in these cases, people can spot, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. This person's not from here. It's a little bit easier when you're Hispanic, so you can blend in a little bit more, but when you're coming in uh, as you were, for you, what was the key to blending in and not attracting too much attention to
2: yourself? So, so before I even get to that, where you, with the discussion about the uh, at a shade job, when you said about the uh, being Hispanic, um, the irony of that story was about 1990, 1991. I don't remember before the year. Myself and Alex uh, were in Bogota at the American Embassy, and uh, we were conducting... A- it was called the post seizure analysis when an airline american airlines whatever airline would get hit with narcotics in the fuselage somewhere in the plane that was an internal conspiracy myself and alex were tasked by u.s customs to go foreign and try to uh, ascertain what occurred so if i go into bogota the airport in bogota wherever it may be we hook up with the local authorities we hook up with the local airlines so on this particular occasion I'm with the embassy i'm with dea where everybody in that we were doing our job that particular night. We went out to eat. We are at a restaurant. It was a restaurant bar. And um, we're basically hanging out to, and, and Alex is speaking Spanish to one of the embassy employees. And the funny part of the story was the guy taps him on the shoulder and he looks at him and says, where are you from? He goes, uh, you, from, you know, from Miami? He goes, no, hi Hialeah. So the guy recognized Alex accent right away as being Cuban. And we're sitting in this bar and and the guy basically says, Well, what are you doing down here? So Alex, you know, in his undercover role says, You know, same as you. And, uh, you know, like, you know, basically meaning he's out here for dope business, you know, not a government business. And uh, and Alex gives him his undercover, uh, our undercover business card from our, our, our uh, import export business. And says, If you ever need anything, you know, I'm, I'm located in, uh, in uh, Doral, and um, this is where I live. I, you know, it's my business. If you need anything, do anything you need. He goes in thanked him immensely and cut back and we actually made contact. I don't recall if we ever actually put a deal together, but the irony being was that here's Alex Alonzo in Bogota in a restaurant meeting a, a bad guy who thought Alex was a bad guy and, you know, not realizing he was uh, a, and, and at that point, it was interesting. Once Alex made contact with this guy, he had to separate himself from the rest of the embassy people. So it, it didn't get into embassy talk. You know, so Alex, you know, so it was so Alex was quick on his feet, was able to just, you know, uh, you know, morph into this, to that, you know, back and forth. It takes a, it takes a talented individual. Um, for me, um, because of all this um, uh, postseason analysis over the years, traveling so much, uh, I was very well connected and friends with attache in Venezuela. who was uh, Al- Alex actually went down there for three years, worked for him, was uh, Wayne Roberts, was um, uh, the attache. Uh, He was my boss in Miami. He was down in uh, Venezuela. He would bring me down, you know, 90-day TDYs to be his assistant. And the main job of the attache office is twofold. Number one is that any collateral request comes in from the United States, any customs office in the United States requesting information um, from the host government or a host business. So, for instance, um, L.A. Customs who send a, a request via the computer and a report saying we need the latest banking information from bank so-and-so, uh, or can you please verify this address, or can you please verify that business? So our uh, number one function was to assist the offices that were in the states or, or other foreign offices that were requesting information, uh, you know, the attaché in London asking for something in, in, in Bogota. So our job was to assist all the local officers with any requests that they put forth and try to you know, fulfill those requests. Um, on the flip side, when the Colombians were asking, law enforcement were asking for information from the states, okay, was this transaction uh, truly, was this container uh, of widgets really delivered to warehouse X? And they would ask us, hey, can you provide the shipping documents and the entry documents and the uh, and the warehouse receipts for that container? Um, and so I would send out a request to the states asking them on behalf of the colombian government can you please you know um you know uh, look into this the reason a lot of this was occurring in south america they had um, laws that were basically um, incentivizing export and what you would have is if a person producing whatever it may be widgets and exporting they would claim to be ten thousand dollars of, of of a commodity and have claim to be export to the united states but basically what would happen is it have an empty container with rocks, and said to contain something, and it was just nothing, and there was claimed to the Colombian government, to the Argentine government, that we just exported hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars worth of widgets, and in fact it was zero, and they would want their incentive rebate from the Colombian, Venezuelan, the, the host government, so it could be a ten percent rebate. So if you do it, you know, a hundred thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars rebate on a on a container. So the, the host government was asking us to verify if the shipment was truly, instead of inspecting investi- it before it left, it was almost like after the fact it was, oh, I think we got screwed. Let's go and see if the, um, if the container actually arrived with what it, what it said. Or more, more, more times than not, the paperwork presented to the Colombian government was completely bogus and drawn up on a computer. It, like, it, they would just come up with an address in a warehouse and it was, the container was never shipped, nothing was shipped, and they would try to get the, uh, the rebates. And we would be able to verify on their behalf, yes, that this is uh, correct, There it was never a container sent. Um, but that was a big, major, uh, for the for governments in South America at the time, that was a major, major scam that was going on that we would try to assist with them. Number two, our job uh, was also trying to develop informants on behalf, you know, seaport, the airport, trying to develop informants who were in the know with regard to narcotic smuggling, you know, concealed and leg- legitimate shipments of um, of goods. And my job would go out there like a salesman, represent, like you know, explaining In in, um, in when I was in Venezuela, explaining to um, the Guardia Nacional a, at uh, Puerto Cabello, the seaport. Listen. Uh, we're working together against the Colombian smuggler. They're using your territory, your, you know, your, your country to smuggle drugs. My job and your job is to stop this. If you have any suspicion that um, drugs might be coming through this port, through that container, all I ask is you notify us, let us know it, and let the container go. And once we verify, uh, and wherever the container may—Miami, New York, New York, wherever it may be going. We'll verify it, check it, and if it's, if, if it test positive, it'll be worth your while. And my my mission was, especially in Venezuela, to convince this is be just when Chavez was coming in, and I, it was very, very difficult because I didn't want the Guardia Nacional to think that they were being um, treasonous or traitors to their own I country, know. and so it was very, very sensitive, but I always, um, my segue was, you and I are working together to thwart the, the common enemy, and that you are being compensated by us because you're helping us stop the seizure. If you stop it here, I would explain to them, I said, listen, and, I, and they could be just as dirty, but I would never know, but I would make, I would tell them, listen, if it stopped here and you seize it, it's just going to get smuggled tomorrow because someone's going to buy that dope and get it out from somebody in in, in in the in the hierarchy. They're going to get the dope at at some level in your organization and get it. So by you letting it go and we making a seizure, you're taken care of. And that was my my uh, my mantra. And that's that's the way you know. And you know, uh, and I, before uh, Alex had already been there for three years. So when I was getting down there, he gave me you know you know filled me in how it runs, how you know these uh, overseas works. And I always made sure when uh, agents came in from the states to whatever country it may be, I explained to them that we are U.S. ambassadors. Every one of us, um, for the most part, you have a Colombian, Venezuelan, Peruvian, whoever it may be, never seen American, and you do not want to be a carpetbagger. You don't want to come in here and uh, you want to be as humble and um, and considerate as you can. Overboard. So the first impression they have is American. Hey, that was a good guy. Um, and I, I I always preached that and you know and lived by that by that rule. Um, when I got to Uruguay, my close friend uh, Carlos Mazza, who also and I, t- I told you this before, my my, my three favorite agents uh, Alex Alonzo, the four besides Bob Stockman, Alex Alonzo, Lorenzo Toledo, and Carlos Mazza, who I always described as the best special agents who have to be Hispanic. It wasn't the Hispanic agent called Alex Alonzo. To me, it was just. Oh, by the way, he has to be Hispanic. Oh, by the way, he has to be Jewish. By the way, it was—it didn't make—it wasn't like being identified as a Hispanic agent, you know, because it, it's almost like you're diminishing, um, you know, the accomplishments. Who, right, exactly. You know, he was a great, great agent who happens to be Hispanic, and that. So Carlos Mazda was the attache in Uruguay, and Uruguay at the time, back in oh one, oh two, and oh three, uh, our embassy covered for for U.S. Customs, Argentina, Chile, Paraguay. Uh, you know, and Uruguay, so we had four countries that we had to cover and assist. So everything I described to you from Venezuela was multiplied by four. So uh, we would do. We would have to assist the Argentines. We have to assist the Chileans um, and uh, or the or the or the Paraguayans. And getting back to what I spoke to you about early with regard to um, Ciudad Bolívar, uh, a border city in Paraguay that borders Brazil. In Argentina, it was almost like a free zone, but it was not certified as a free zone. The city on that tri-border area was comprised of Lebanese nationals and Chinese nationals. And the the whole reason for that city to be there was for consumer goods. And the consumer goods coming from China, either counterfeit or otherwise, coming across the continent in containers, landing in CISO from DVDs, electronics, whatever it may be, um, for the sole purpose of selling... The Chinese product to those three or those Brazilian and Argentine markets for less duty. So, if you're a shopkeeper in Rio or if you're a shopkeeper in Brasilia, and you have to pay 100%. to these countries who charge 100% import duties? So, if you have a shop in Rio and you send Mike and Miles to the border, and you have a thousand-dollar exemption, like, like we do here in the states, so you can have 15 people going a month to the border buying all these consumer goods and then bringing them back to the shop, selling it, and the, there was no duty going to the government. So basically what was happening is the Chinese in the US, they were selling the product to the Lebanese. The Lebanese were then selling it legitimately to Brazilians and Argentines, but the amount of money earned you know, from uh, consumer good products was in the millions monthly, monthly. And what, what we began to see was on a monthly event, American Airlines was transporting 15, 20, 25 million in cash, U.S. dollars, from Asuncion to, uh, to, to the Federal Reserve in New York. And we were trying to get a handle. How How is it? It was more than the government of Paraguay was making on their own. And where was this coming from? We were able to ascertain it was coming from the border area. Um, nobody was paying tax on the money. The money was then being funneled to the Federal Reserve, and then it was wired transferred to all over the world, and a majority of it was being uh, wired back to Beirut, uh, where you had um, uh, individuals wiring money, quote, to their parents. The parents at that time would go to the mosque for services on Friday, the hat would get passed around by Hezbollah, and they would have to uh, put the $100 into the hat um, uh, and to show that they're part of the cause. So, willingly or unwillingly, Hezbollah was making millions in terrorist funding activities from all these border activities on consumer goods, on consumer goods. And no, like a, up to that point, it was like, wow, you know, we didn't even know what we were in, engaged with until we realized what was going on. And everybody we interviewed on the Lebanese side at the border, same standard line. Listen, I'm a businessman, and I send money to my parents, and what they do with it at the mosque is up to them. And if they're being forced to do it or otherwise or manipulated, they That's what they have to do to live. And we understood that component. Um, But that was a major, major funding mechanism, and it still is going on today. And one of the things that we, as the Americans at the embassy, were trying to preach to these foreign governments, basically on import tax, most of these countries were charging 100%. So 100% duty on pillows, on shoes, on whatever it may be. What was happening is you had everybody smuggling and bypassing the 100% duty. My stand in line to all these host government's customs was in the United States, we have a 5% duty. So we have 100% of the people, importers, paying the 5% duty. Is it not better to lower the duty, lower the tax, and have everyone pay instead of having no duty come in at all? So the government itself, the governments themselves made this scenario occur because the duties were so high. And if you legitimately try to import a container and you don't want to pay the duty or you want to pay less your paperwork would go to the bottom of the of the stack and can sit there for months to, to, get, to get cleared that that's how the foreign customs would get you okay you want to play ball with us or you want it to sit there it'll sit there at the, at the port and never get released
3: Yep, i mean that and that's you know what and it's not just a tax either it's just because i was having this conversation with uh, one of my bomb squad friends detective barry shout out to him if he's watching In that uh, Kevin, if he ever calls you, he calls you from a blocked number. The reason why is in an Al Qaeda magazine and he's off the radar because and they have a full out spread magazine. You think you're reading Sports Illustrated. You know, they have tint colors, columnists like it's nothing. And that's where they get the money.
2: That's correct. That's good. That's absolutely correct. That's, you know, so that was our mission to you be know, part of U.S. Customs trying to train foreign customs in, you know, best practices, the best practices. Act. Right. So um, uh, I was able to wear a couple of hats. I was able to wear my customs agent hat, but I also worked very closely with customs inspectors at the airport who were involved with cargo. And because of mm-hmm. learning from Alex, the import export business so wealthy, that was his previous life that I was able to talk the talk. About customs because most customs agents were investigators they didn't know anything about customs importation exportation that wasn't their their bailiwick um but i because of being around the inspectors being around alex learned what the laws you know uh, you know are all about i mean something as simple as uh, something called it's called drawback you import uh sugar from the dominican republic to make this actually happened to me i had a case sugar coming in from the caribbean sugar coming in from the caribbean to make tootsie rolls yeah. the tootsie <laughs> yes. rolls the Tootsie Rolls, the sugar in the Tootsie Rolls, Tootsie Rolls are made, and the Tootsie Rolls are now being exported to Europe. Well, if the sugar that was taxed go into that Tootsie Roll, and you can show that the Tootsie Rolls were exported, the U.S. government will give you back the tax that was paid on the sugar because it was never used for domestic consumption. So we had, again, as investigated, these scams where we had companies buying millions of dollars worth of candy, buying candy and getting the um, the drawback on the sugar from the candy saying that this candy was being exported but it was never being exported from here out and it was being sold you know so they paid you know a dollar for a piece of a candy bar and um, they sold it for 90 cents they were getting more from the drawback on the tax from the sugar that was in the candy so they made money on the drawback another scam you know but, you know like it's you know crazy crazy so that was so what i learned from the immigration side was always have that open mind because it's never what it appears to be Um, and not pigeonhole yourself that is purely um, a money laundering caper or what was is it dopers involved you know so you got to be open-minded with regard to what is the scam what is the scam Uh, and i was fortunate because with customs being overseas at the attache offices I learned a multitude of different disciplines, um, not only narcotics, not only money laundering, but the, the frauds that I explained to you with regard to what happened on the tripod area. But uh, uh, another big case where in 1998, we had gold bars coming out of Peru into the United States. Normally a gold bar would come in and Brinks or Loomis would be on the, on the, on the tarmac at the plane, pick them up and take them to their, uh, their vault. On this particular occasion, we have bars of gold that were, came up on a cargo plane, went to a, car, a warehouse on the tarmac at, M, at uh, Miami International, where the bars were being held. And it was a Saturday night, and I had an informant that was in the warehouse called me at midnight saying, listen, um, th- th- I, some people trying to break in. I said, call 911. The cops arrived. Cops arrived thinking I didn't know anything about this goal, thinking it's, it's drugs. They're looking for drugs um they go through all the manifests. they see all these gold bars they take the gold bars they so oh, it's gold bars they take the gold bars to their headquarters to safekeeping uh this is saturday monday i show up with the with customs inspectors and the gold gar- bars are all gold in color and ultimately what happened was there was just plated lead ingots of uh, 20 pound ingots and what was happening we drilled them and it comes out silver in color The scam, I can't figure out this. I'm thinking money laundering. Okay, you got dopers buying gold bars, claiming that they exported a million dollars, but it was really bogus. The scam was the other way around. In Peru and in Colombia and Ecuador, they had an export incentive. If you dug gold out of the ground, there was patrimony. And if you kept it, you had to pay a duty to the state. If you exported it, you would get that part of it back. Well, on these occasions, what was happening is companies were making fake bars and claiming a million dollars worth of exports when they were exporting, you know, nothing. And wound up getting these tax incentive rebates from the Peruvian government on the bars that never existed. So um, having worked in Venezuela, my, my boss was also the attache of Peru. He contacted his Peruvian counterparts. They flew off to Miami. I was with them for a week. I went to every consigné that got these bars. Uh, and were able to get a statement that they were being paid uh, to receive the bars and just get rid of them because the bars were worthless. Uh, and the Peruvians were able to make a case against the exporters in Peru um, against you know, the fraud against the Peruvian government. So that's the stuff that we, you know, we worked hand-in-hand with the foreign governments. Um, you know, Just amazing stuff that you would uh, you never imagine. I mean, you have passengers arriving at MIA um, with bags <laughs> full of um, what appeared to be cut emeralds you know, green, green emerald. You know, green emeralds in color, and they would come to U.S. Customs, and it was as long as it was not set in a ring or a, a jewelry, it was there's no duty. And what basically happened was you had a bag full of uh, emeralds claiming a million dollars. They got a U.S. Customs declaration for a million dollars. No one verified the veracity of the, of the gems. Turns out they were all seven-up bottles, and it was just. <laughs> and so you have bad guys coming in with bags full of um, what appeared to be emeralds where they would then show receipts that they sold sold the emeralds and would go out with cash. And it was all predicated on glass. My goodness. Yeah, you know, those are, so those are all different scams. And that, you know, like that, that was a learning curve for me. And I was like, I say, Alex, what what's just happened here? He goes, well, since it wasn't, um, um, you know, uh, set as a ring or a, a pendant, there was no duty. And it was just, a, 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 you know, a am quite and there was no duty on it. But yet, the customs would not check the veracity and give them. So they had a, a U.S. government document showing they just imported a million dollars worth of gems that were, in fact, not. It was just glass, right. and they would use that U.S. customs document to legitimize their their their, their the export of their cash.
3: My goodness, yeah, you know, because yeah. it that, that's why he, talking earlier about funding and, for example, take the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So I'm so glad it encompasses many different agencies right. because, you know, every agency has different ways of handling things. But the NYPD knows things the FBI doesn't know and the FBI uh, knows things that maybe Customs and Border Patrol doesn't know. And you all supplement each other because exactly what you said. There was something that you didn't know. You had Alex there, or, you yeah. know, you could have the DEA or ATF pointing right. you in, in the right direction, you know, and so it's amazing to have that. We're coming up on the hour and a half, Mark. Go ahead.
2: As I say, after 9-11, uh, Stalk, Bob Stockman was, um, um, uh, was fortuitous for me in that he was assigned to the FBI. We both worked for Lorenzo Toledo at the time, mm-hmm. and that Stockman was assigned to the FBI, and he asked Lorenzo to uh, have me reassigned to work with him at the, the, the JCDF because my knowledge of all these nuances of customs was, you know, pretty high. And uh, that he knew that I would be an asset, you know, when we got over there. And the one event that he, yeah, Bob, that's you know, in his book, you know, it's like, of course, he talks about, the J, you know, our episodes of the JCDF. And um, the one episode that I found very exciting was right after 9-11, the next day, um, the supervisor for the FBI had formerly been the FBI attaché in, in Buenos Aires, and I had met him on several occasions. And I remember telling him at the time, I said, "We now we knew who the 19 were. We had the manifests. We knew who they were." At the time, um, the immigrant visas, or the, excuse me, non-immigrant visas to come into the country, and their photos were only memorialized for one year. And we had with us, we had a State Department agent, we had a Secret Service agent. So I said to the boss, they said, "Hey, boss, you know how it works inside the embassy." I said, "The applications are held. They go to Washington, and then they're they're destroyed." I said, "You need my opinion. You need to get the Secret the, uh, the State Department agent to contact uh, State in Washington to memorialize and hold every visa application for the 19, as well as the photos, and to." put a moratorium on any destruction from this moment forward on any visas coming from anywhere. Um, In case we were able to identify more in the future, we wanted to have the application and the photos of, of potentially more terrorists. Well, the photos that were in the paper the next day were all the visa application photos that myself and Stockman told the boss to tell the State Department agent, hey, you know, make sure these are, uh, are are held and not destroyed. And so the photos that you saw in the paper of the 19 were all their visa application photos. Wow. Yeah, one, one, of them,
3: had, one of them got their flight instructions in Florida.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the worst part of that was the going back in time, three of them were flying to uh, the Bahamas to have what we call a terrorist conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mohammed Ada was one of them. And he, along with two others, landed in the Bahamas. Their visa to come into the United States had expired. The Bahamians got it right. The Bahamians, see their passport, see their visa expired. They turned them around, put them on the, on the next plane out. They went back, they actually flew into Orlando. So they, they were expelled from the Bahamas. They landed in Orlando and basically were given a parole to enter the country and report to immigration in Miami to get an extension. Um, the extension never happened because 9-11 happened, um, where, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know, so uh, myself and Bob Stockman drove up to Orlando. The custom, when you tra- travel international, you have to fill out an immigrant. If you're an alien, you have to fill out an immigration form. But everybody has to fill out a customs declaration, be it you know, a citizen or non-citizen. So we were able to, uh, I was able to ascertain that the the customs declaration for these guys was in a warehouse in Orlando. And I was able to get an agent in Orlando to actually go through the warehouse, pull the The Customs Declaration, and and Bob and myself actually drove up there, picked it up from the agent to bring it back to the FBI. So that's the stuff that we at Customs brought to the table for the FBI, our inner workings of how the movement of people and cargo operated. And that's why the JCF was so successful. They were smart that they brought um, disciplines from every agency, local as well as federal. And uh, it made for tremendous marriage, tremendous marriage uh i was very proud of the work we did uh, i felt we were um you know uh, successful in boarding any future um uh episodes uh we had all the contacts with the airlines we were able to get pull manifests for every flight from all the airlines every flight that was a large body uh, aircraft the, the same as the uh the ones that went down um and go through every manifest to see if anybody was uh a, potential because it was possible the planes landed before they got hijacked that's what we were thinking there was others and we were able to go through every manifest not me personally but the fbi because of the, what was provided by all of us thinking together collectively on how to get all these manifests and what we what we were able to come up with where every name was run through a, a, a computer database
3: One more thing I want to ask you before we get to the concluding segment, and it's been a great show with you, and I've enjoyed it immensely. I'm going to have to bring you back because there's stuff we haven't even touched on tonight, so you're going to have to come back sometime. Same thing with Lorenzo, Alex, uh, and Bob. I'm going to have to – you know what? Down the road, I have to do a show with all of you guys together on the panel. That would be great. I'm going to talk to Bob about that after the show. But 2006 – now, you're still active, as I mentioned in my introduction, but as far as with the Florida Department of –
2: Law uh, enforcement. Law
3: enforcement. But at the federal level, you called it a career in
2: 2006 – Right. Uh, what prompted that? What was so the thing at, that made you say it's time? At, at, um, at, at 2006, I wanted to do something else. I had gone back to school. I got my master's in exercise science. I love coaching. I love physical education. I was teaching at the time at, uh, as an adjunct, at a professor at Broward uh, Community College, teaching health classes. I really enjoyed that. Um, I also enjoyed immensely coaching baseball at a lower level than Bob coached basketball. Baseball was my passion, and I still coach today, 10, 10 and under team. So in 2006, I retired. Uh, I got um, hired as a uh, assistant coach at Douglas High School, where the tragedy occurred three years ago with the students. Um, uh, coach Weiss, who was killed and murdered, was one of our fine coaches, football and baseball. You know, adored by everyone. Um, I wanted to get into high- coaching high school baseball, and so uh, and my son was now attending. I coached him all the way up at five, all the way to, at that point to sixteen travel baseball getting into uh, uh, high school and teaching uh, doing the conditioning became the outfield coach um, so I was able to watch my son play for his high school team and I could be on the sideline as a coach and watch him perform and it was like to to me the absolute greatest thing that a parent can ever experience Um, when he graduated he went on to uh, he got a scholarship to go to Lynn University here in Boca Raton where he uh, uh, in his first year as a freshman he actually had wound up getting surgery on his shoulder which uh, forced him to end his career but at that point in 2010 i was able to get picked up as a contractor back with immigration customs enforcement as an analyst so my analytical thinking i was at, uh, for two years i was doing um, uh, um uh, analytical work on behalf of immigration customs form as a contractor collecting my pension um and then from there i was doing federal backgrounds i was doing security backgrounds for about a year and i just wanted to do something different a got picked up and got a gig, went over to Afghanistan. I was in Bagram for a year um, uh, as a, a law enforcement advisor um, to the U.S. Uh, Army. Um, I was, you know, 1st Cavalry Division out of Fort Hood, Texas, 2nd uh, Combat Brigade. I was. I, I just I loved it. I was there as a person who can give advice at a higher level um, with regard to um, uh, what we encountered. Um, so for me, what happened in August when we lost Bagram, uh, was, uh, I was – there. I was at the that prison that was there. It was very, very um, heart-wrenching when we just gave it up after, you know, so many years and 20 years of fighting the good fight with all our um, our, our allies. I trained the Jordanians. I trained the techs. Uh I was able to, you know, and less than lethal. Um, and it was just the most rewarding experience other than my children being born and marrying my wife. It was the most rewarding experience. Uh, it was truly amazing. At that point, I applied for um, uh, a position with the state of Florida uh, as a special agent with out- overseas. Uh, I was interviewed from Bagram, uh, alcohol, beverage, tobacco. They picked me up immediately. Um, I, I stayed with them for about a year, and then I transferred to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, where I am today. And now yes. I, get to, I get to play with my son, and my daughter happens to also be a, Mallory happens to be especially special agent with alcohol, tobacco, firearms up in Jacksonville. So I get to be law enforcement with both of them. That's exactly. of the three yeah, of you. Yeah, thank you. Yes, sir. That's my daughter. I, you know, my, my daughter, she's a special agent, my son with um, uh, Homeland Security and uh, the proud dad, the proud dad. the uh, the most interesting part before my, my son was a uh, deputy with Broward Sheriff's Office for five years prior to coming to the feds. And at the very end of his uh, time with BS, uh, Broward mm-hmm. Sheriff's Office, I had a um, a warrant that I was um you're going to get an execute and, uh, on a subject who was a convicted felon with a gun. We needed, he needed to be arrested purely. We needed him as a witness in a, in a bigger case. I asked my, um, my son's boss, if it was okay if my son could be the co affiant on the application for the warrants and his boss had no problem. My, my plan was to give the warrants to my son, have the guy arrested in Broward. He lived in Broward. Um, point being was when uh, we did the affidavit and we, presented ourselves in front of the duty judge and he sees michael son miles son and the judge gives me this look he goes are you guys related i said your honor happens to be my son he goes you know like like, holy cow i've never seen that before that how cool is that my son was sort of like he was kind of like embarrassed and i said one day he has a son i said one day for posterity you're going to put that in a frame and show it to your son and uh, and uh, you know one of my prouder moments is being able to do a, a father son warrant. And my my ultimate goal is to do one with my daughter, get a, a father daughter one. And and then I can then I can then I can retire. I can be done. Yeah, <laughs> that's the but, that's the yeah. last
3: little check thing. Yeah, right, right, That's my last
2: check. That's, that's exactly it. I, that's why I got one check mark left, and that's it is to be able to uh, do that warrant with my daughter. And uh, you know I'm just proud of both of them. And my daughter in law, who I consider to be a daughter, she happens to be a detective. With um, the Broward Sheriff's Office, she does, uh, you know, crimes against children and uh, domestic uh, violence and could be more proud of Alyssa. You know, she's, uh, you know, one in a million. And I just love her like 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 a daughter. Um, and uh, uh, it's it's just the dynamics are great. And I always joke me say as a man, you know, you know, things are good when you look at your son and your son is going to go over his house with my wife and that my my wife and my daughter in are almost like mother and daughter and that my daughter looks at at my wife as a a mom and i can see my son's face that peace oh thank god goodness my wife and my mom get along my wife (laughs) (laughs) and and i i know i know that i walk out of the house i'm totally content because you know like he's content and it's like you know and and and, you know and this is all life is good basically because of having the opportunity to get hired starting with the border troll and taking it seriously and my life has always been blessed but always doing the right thing you know i i always tell the young guys i said the only thing you own is your word and your integrity and the day they close the lid you want to be remembered for your integrity and um and your word and uh you can have a thousand attaboys and one oh oh boy and that the thousand boys do not negate the bad boy and uh, you, you, you live in. I try to impart that into the young agents. You know, always doing the right thing, doing the right thing when no one's looking. That's you know, that's that's the uh, the motto in law enforcement. And uh, I've always lived by that. And you know, I'm proud when when uh, when people meet my son and my daughters. They said, they said, "Oh, it's your your dad, Miles," and they get high kudos instead of like, oh man, instead of saying the opposite. Oh, his father was a jerk, and uh, and they would avoid them. So that that's. legacy you know i always wanted to leave and you know it's the same you know bob is the same exact legacy alex lorenzo um you know uh toby the the guys like we're all the same we come out of the same you know you know the you know the the, the same nest you know uh we grew up different places different locations but the same ethic and that's what makes this job so honorable is being working with honorable guys this has been a blast i thank you very
3: much Thank you, sir. Is, we have a segment we always wrap up with it is called rapid fire five yep. hit and run questions from me five hit and run answers from you we will go quickly okay. are you ready yes sir and you can say pass if you want to first okay. if not for law enforcement what other career could you have seen yourself
2: pursuing and enjoying i would absolutely uh, have to say it would be um uh, you know phys ed teacher and coaching
3: and there you go and you're doing that now as we discussed yep, earlier right.
2: second favorite cop show my favorite cop show, you wouldn't believe it is for me, uh, is Car 54. I was like, this is before your time to me. That was like simpler times, easy times, like how life was so easy and so good. And I just, you know, like I watched that show and I, I, I can watch a 100 times each episode and just laugh at each one. because It was like just it capsulized the easiness of what New York City was all about, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, how easy, how simple it was, simple times.
3: As third, and this could be an action, yeah. it could be a comedy, because there's so many different right. subgenres within the genre itself. Favorite cop movie?
2: Oh, absolutely. The The favorite for me was uh, The French Connection. The only reason that became my favorite was when um, Alex was doing it on the cover in Brazil, and we are, at the time, we had no radios. It's 1990, mm-hmm. and I have 10 D agents, four customs agents, and Alex is in a bar-slash-restaurant meeting bad guys, and the boulevard was like wherever the scene with with uh, uh, you know Popeye Doyle going to the Frenchman at the cafe, and he's looking in. The guy's eating a Popeye Doyle's drinking a cup of coffee, and the, and the Frenchman's having you know a cuisine. And the boulevard was so wide. It was five in the morning, and every half hour, one of us would walk into the club to make sure he was okay. Mm-hmm. And to get to the club, you have to walk over the homeless. The boulevard was wide. It was like it was the the, the Popeye Doyle version of uh, of being in Rio and keeping a tab on Alex. <laughs>
3: there you go yes. and that movie has an iconic car chase in it too yes all of the for sure. yeah yeah it's yeah, one yeah of the great yeah. chases of all time and portrayed yeah, yeah. in cinema yeah. fourth favorite bar or restaurant in florida
2: oh absolutely hands down from the day i got here is a mexican-american restaurant called la bomba and it's in margate and i've been going there you know since 1987 and so our weekly events there you go <laughs> as a family
3: Fifth and finally, and you kind of touched on it earlier, but nonetheless, you can expand on it. What advice would you give anyone coming on the job now?
2: My uh, my couple of things. Number one, I, um, I really advocate, and I use this example of my son. When my son finished, was going with baseball, I said to him, I do not want a criminal justice degree. I don't want a communication degree. Communication degrees are for attractive women who want to be in front of the camera. I said, <laughs> I said criminal justice degrees are for most athletes that can't, Get anything higher you know the courses were, were quote easier and not not to den- denigrate the the, the uh, program but i said hey if you can get a business degree i'm proud of you and if you're in the business world if you can get a finance or accounting i'm really proud of you and he was able to get an accounting degree and i said one day you use that for money laundering my daughter i said for, for women i said listen criminal justice you might as well get a psychology degree because it's it's more wide and varied you can do more with it and you can do everything with the psychology degree that you could with a criminal justice degree but more importantly go for that masters you get that masters anybody will hire you and uh, you know the you get a couple of years experience at the local level and then uh, you try to move on to the federal level where um at the federal level basically you, you're a the white-collar criminal investigator the uh, like like a first-grade detective in nypd you know the, um, that's the type of thing but that, that is as an investigator for the federal government they can't take that away from you if uh you're a detective in nypd and something goes wrong and you step on yourself they can put you back in uniform with the federal government you you're you're an investigator you're always an investigator you know uh, so uh one day you're, you're investigating drugs the other day you're investigating something else but you're always an investigator so my goal my, my advice would be um get a degree uh, either business or uh, psychology um and push for that masters and um and you know one year of local two year local and then go for the feds
3: there you go. Like I said, and I can't say it enough. I know I'm telling like a broken record. This has been a blast. I thank you so much for being here. Any shout-outs that you want to give to anyone or anything?
2: I just wanted to again, um, you know, uh, number one, um, starting with my uh, my wife uh, Renee, who's uh, been, you know, from day one, 1978. She flew out um, to the, you know, to the border. She was also from Flushing, New York. Never got on a plane by herself. Landed, and and uh, you know, I just, you know, uh, you know, I, I love her dearly for you know, sticking with me for all these years, the ups and downs and the moving and the traveling and, you know, everything I did. And she was always supportive of uh, my kids, my son, Michael, and uh, his wife, Alyssa, and their two and their two kids, uh, Landon and Paisley, who are my, my grandkids. And I just, you know, adore them all. I'm proud of them. My uh, my daughter, Mallory, who happens to be a special agent with ATF in Jacksonville, a magnificent job, her career. prior to This was, she was a uh, mental health counselor for six years here in South Florida. And she took all those talents and was able to uh, um, you know, use them in her ATF world. And if I just, one quick shout for her, would impressed me to no end, uh, a couple months back, um, she was asked by one of our supervisors to deactivate a female informant and because the information received that there's to re-engage in criminal activity. So my daughter, along with a local detective, went and met with her. They had previously moved her to the Georgia side of the line. They had her in Australia, she had five kids. And my daughter, uh, was able to speak with her and ascertain that the children were the product of human trafficking. So my daughter, at that moment, was able to take her ATF hat off and put on her mental health counseling hat, and she had all the connections with regard to help um, that type of help. Was able to uh, obtain a bed, and I don't know Alabama or Tennessee, but a bed for women who were um, abused. And that I was just so proud of her that, you know, in the man's world, it was, you know, hey, you know, forget about her, you know, you know, de- deactivate her, get her off the books, you know, get her, you know. And she, my daughter was, you know, being the human being she is, was able to, um, you know, get her what she needed. So I I, I could be more proud of her for all that. And then uh, Alex, Lorenzo and and Robert are my, my, my three brothers. You know, this job was made. Um, uh, and the enjoyment because of guys working with guys like them you you, you go, every day was going to work in the in, in the playground that's how we how we felt working with those guys every day was being in the playground so those are my shout outs and i greatly appreciate um, this opportunity to t- tell my story
3: I greatly appreciate you being here. My shout out as always. Well to yeah to Lorenzo, Bob and, and Alex, especially Bob for getting me in touch with so many great guys. I really appreciate it. And in the live chat, as always, you guys come by every show and you're so loyal and you support the show. And I greatly appreciate it. Alicia B, thank you for being here. The pranzos, Peter and Rochella. Like I said, Peter, the legendary NYPD yep. lieutenant. Uh, who had quite the life disrupting the drug, gr- drug trade in Harlem in the seventies and eighties, Maui Swift, Ruth Ann Griffin. I don't want to miss anybody. So I'm making sure I get everybody here. Alex was watching as was our Helia Alonzo. Uh, thank you for stopping by Alex. Hopefully I can get everybody. Like I said, on the show later on. And uh, one quick thing before I end the show, I am sure. but a simple man. I don't ask for much from my audience, but for the audience, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm trying to get to 1000 subscribers. I'm almost at 600 it's okay. MC's audio, MC Apostrophe S Audio. So for those of you watching, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe. Coming up on the Mike DiNavion the Podcast tomorrow, we have, uh, well, two interesting guests. First is Alice Gaynor, Emmy Award-winning news anchor for CBS New York. She'll be here for the first show. And for the second show, he has covered the NYPD for the New York Daily News for almost, well, over a decade now, almost 15 years. Rocco Parrish-Candola will return to the Mike DiNavion the Podcast. He's a returning customer. He's been on before. But we want to do a second interview because the first uh, interview we did went to crap because of zoom which we are not on anymore for that very reason so we get a redo with rocco tomorrow in the meantime on behalf of special agent miles son i am mike cologne and we see you next time take care everybody thanks for watching have a great rest of your night
2: good night sir